This morning, before we opened the doors and got started as volunteers, we gathered and we had a little devotion on Psalm 19. And it ends with this little prayer that I feel like I should begin with today. May the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. My favorite part of my job as pastor, well, my second favorite part, but I won't tell you about the actual favorite part. My second favorite part of my job is meeting with people. Anybody ever had a chance to have coffee or lunch or a beer or something else with me? Cool, for those of you not raising your hands, let's make it happen, just let me know, okay? My favorite part of meeting with people is hearing their stories, sometimes good and sometimes bad. And the more I meet with people, both inside the church and those who are not inside the church, the more I hear a couple of common stories about who Jesus is. One of the stories about who Jesus is, I think, is not entirely off base. Specifically, people uh, grew up in an environment where they looked at the Bible and said, Jesus is love. And therefore, everything love is of Jesus. And as a result, Jesus isn't necessarily the only way. He's just a good way to remind us to love other people. And I love meeting with people who have that perspective because they're starting from a place of love. Jesus is love. And yet, there's more to Jesus than just His love. And love sometimes has a substance that doesn't always feel like love. Like when I tell my children, no, because too much dessert will make their stomach hurt. Sometimes love is not always fun. But more often than that, when I meet with people, especially those not inside the church, not connected to a, a group of believers, those who maybe for whatever reason have left the church, what I hear from them is the church I grew up in, or the church I see in the news, or the church I've experienced through my neighbors, hates people. It's all about the wrath of God and how we're doomed to hell and damned. And you know what? I don't want anything to do with a church that is so hateful. And sometimes these people aren't all that opposed to Jesus, just to the people who say he, they follow him. Sometimes they look at Jesus and, like, we think he was a pretty cool dude. We've got a lot of questions, though. But the church and this wrath of God stuff. Maybe you grew up in a church where week in and week out the pastor stood up front and slammed his fist on the pulpit and declared, you sinner are going to hell. And you just thought that was normal? And he talked about all the things you shouldn't do, like don't smoke, and then after church you went out back and everybody was smoking. <laughs> don't drink. And just a fun little story for you. Do you know the difference between a Lutheran and a Baptist? Lutherans are allowed to say hello to their pastor at the liquor store. You see, some churches you may have grown up in take the side of God about His justice, about the fact that He is righteous and holy and unlike every one of us. And they use that as a weapon. A weapon to scare people. A weapon to hate people. A weapon to exclude people. A weapon to build up a pedestal upon which they can look down upon others and say, at least I'm not like those people. And they justify it in the name of God. 
I begin with that because as we get into our text today in Romans, I just have to give a little warning up front. When I picked Romans as a book I thought it'd be good for us to go through, I really thought about skipping this section. Because not all of Scripture is fun to read or easy to preach. And sometimes the things that are written in Scripture, I'm like, I don't really like what that may or may not imply or say. And often I have a lot of questions about it. So I'd like to just skip past it. But I think to do justice to Paul and the things he wrote, to do justice to Jesus and the message he proclaims, to do justice to the truth, I I have to acknowledge the things I don't always find sit well. But to do so, we're going to back up to where we were last week. If you want to follow along in Romans chapter 1, it's on page 1,172 of those blue Bibles in front of you. Or you can use your phone or whatever uh, Bible you brought with you. Last week, we looked at Paul's main thesis, the thing he says the entire letter to the church in Rome is about. If you remember, the church in Rome is a bunch of Jewish Christians who follow Jesus and also follow some measure of the Jewish custom and law. And there's a lot of division and dissension where they don't all get along and at times even hate one another. And there's all kinds of turmoil in the city of Rome because the Christians have stirred up trouble in some way or another and the government doesn't like it. And so Paul, he's writing to these divided people with a desperate desire to see them unified. To see them come together as one in Christ, not hating one another, not dividing against one another, not pitting each other as enemies of the other, but instead unified by this good news of Jesus, which he spells out here in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In modern terms, he's saying, look, I'm not ashamed of this message I have to declare, this good news that Jesus is restoring and healing everything and everyone who is broken. First to those who are in the church and then also to those who are not. This is whom He's come for. This good news. He goes on, what is this good news? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this letter of Paul's is intended to teach and convey to the people of God what is the righteousness of God. What does it mean to be holy as He is holy? To be declared new even when you're still broken? What does it mean to live as His in a world that is fallen and messy? Now, as logic would go, in order to paint the picture of what God's righteousness is, Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter painting the picture of what our unrighteousness is. Describing in great detail our brokenness, including in the next chapter, those who have been given God's commandments and His law, who've been told His promise, and yet continue to openly sin. To do what causes harm to them and those around them to rebel against God. And the conclusion of Paul's little preface teaching what is the unrighteousness of God is this. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we read what he has to say next, we have to keep that at the front of our mind. Paul is not painting a picture to separate some from others. He's not painting a picture to declare some as good and some as bad or some as less bad. He's painting a picture to say every one of us is equally and wholly unrighteous. Not right with God. That is by our own doing. So with that in mind, we get into this next section of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Like I mentioned, maybe you grew up in the church where the wrath of God was used as a weapon to scare people. And you believed in Jesus or you became baptized simply for the sake of trying to not go to hell. Did anybody grow up in that church or see that in the community around you? Paul is not saying that the wrath of God is burning you and torturing you and punishing you for eternity as some have taught. In fact, what we see Paul describe the wrath of God as, I would say is altogether different. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Paul has a view of God in which he believes that God is so powerful and so good and so gracious that the very fabric of creation and the world around us reveals the quality and the character and the nature of our God. Anybody ever spent time in the Smokies? And you sat down and you looked out at all the trees or the creeks or a waterfall or the views from the mountaintops and you were just filled with this awe and wonder? Anybody ever spent time reflecting on how it is that the earth revolves around the sun year in and year out and the moon around the earth and the sun in this solar system around the galaxy and the galaxy within the universe and how just small we are in the grand scheme of things? Interestingly enough, I've been asked by many people in the last week, do you think aliens exist? I don't know, maybe. Why not? We've got a big universe and a great God. Certainly he could have done something we don't know about. That seems probable. But what we do know is in the very fabric of creation, we can see God's intricate care. We can see how every little detail works together to make a grand picture. All of the leaves by themselves are unique and wonderful, but in a forest of leaves. Wow. Especially when they change colors in the fall. Paul is operating with this assumption that God reveals Himself in nature, and through nature we should know who God is. He continues in verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now who is they that Paul is referring to? Who should be without excuse? All men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Everyone who turns away from what is true to something that is a lie, to something that is less than truth. Anybody in here have kids? Do your kids ever tell you a partial truth? Anybody in here as an adult tell your boss a partial truth? Let me tell you how I met my wife. My wife had left the church for several years and was coming back to the church that I was on staff at. And when she came back, she checked the little box on that little connect card they had that said, I would like to get involved with young adults. And I happened to be the guy who was over the, the department focusing on young adults. It was a really large church. And so she checks the little box and they sent me an email passing along her contact information Says, hey, this Laura lady would like to connect. Can you reach out to her? Anybody in here notice that I'm not always good with emails? Sometimes I forget to respond to them or it takes a little bit before I do. Well, I forgot all about this need to email her and a month later she checked that little box again. And I got a follow-up email. Hey Adam, have you heard back from Laura yet? At which point I quickly sent an email and then responded and said, I've reached out but have not heard from her. Was it true? Yes. Was it totally true? Not quite. Right? We take what is true and we twist it to fit what works for us. This is not an us versus them. This is everybody. We're all prone to it at some point or another. But in Paul's writings, as he's describing this, he's not talking about those little tiny moments, but how God is revealed in creation and yet Rather than acknowledge him for who he is, we find every kind of reason to justify not paying attention to him or noticing him or believing in him. He goes on, verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, all throughout Scripture, if you've ever read any of the Old Testament, from the time that Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, from the time in which they rebelled against God, their hearts were darkened. We see that there in the garden, they're immediately aware of their shame and their nakedness, and they seek to hide themselves. We see that there in the garden, they're not only aware of it, they begin to blame one another and point fingers even at God. And all of the Old Testament, and even the New after that, we see that time and time again, the very people God created to be in relationship with Him rebel against Him. They do the very things they're not supposed to do, and the simple things they are supposed to do, they don't do. Paul, in painting this picture of God's wrath, says, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Some of you are laughing because you're like, that's my boss. Don't, don't call anybody out here, okay? <laughs> Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, let me tell you again, here's what happened. As they began to rebel against God, they began to look for ways to worship anything other than God. And not just to worship, but to seek after, to delight and to fear or to love anything other than God. 
Oftentimes, this would culminate in them creating statues in the image of whatever it was they wanted to worship. Now, I doubt any of you have statues in your house of the things you worship other than God. Probably. Or maybe your TV would tell a different story. Because your TV, while in and of itself is not evil, you spend more time fixated on that than being with your family or loving your family or talking to your neighbor or maybe the thing that you have grown to love more than anything else is that precious car you've worked so hard on and you spend all your time and all your money and all your resources making that car perfect. Maybe the thing you've come to love more than anything else is actually yourself. So as long as you are happy, as long as you are fine, it doesn't matter what other people are feeling or what you've done wrong. See, we're all prone to idolatry. Whether or not it's a carved image of stone or whether it's something we've made in our own image, we are prone to worship all sorts of things other than God. And Paul continues with the wrath of God. Therefore, anytime therefore shows up, you should ask what it's there for. Because we are prone to worship anything other than God, because we suppress what is true, and we make gods in our own image, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, Paul, he portrays the wrath of God not as God punishing and torturing and hating us for eternity. The very wrath of God is God allowing us and giving to us the very lusts of our heart. The things we desire the most. God gives to us. When we think about the wrath of God as God giving all the things we want to us, that doesn't seem so wrathful. Like, I want what I want. And yet, if our hearts are flawed and the very things we want will leave us empty or will leave us hurting or will not be enough or will leave us in our time of need if the very things we want are bad for us, and God gives us over to them. That sounds pretty rough to me. It says it's because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. See, all of sin comes down to this. Rather than being made in God's image, we seek to make God in our own image. We seek to make God fit the narrative we want Him to fit, be the God we want Him to be, do the things He does. And, and this leads sometimes to that first narrative I shared. God is love and therefore everything and all things are okay and good. That, unfortunately, isn't God. You see, if God is love without justice, He isn't a good God. But if God is justice Without mercy, He isn't a loving God. We can't make God in our image because we will always make the wrong God 
one who's not as good as we think he is or as loving as we need him to be. And this is where this text gets really complicated. Because as Paul spells out this argument of how we have turned to worship the creation and not the Creator, he comes to this next point that I will be the first to say has through much of modern culture been twisted and misused to hate and condemn and also has been ignored and dismissed because of that. Here's what Paul says. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. See, the problem here is this text has very little to do with these two verses but our world has made these two verses the fullness of the wrath of God. The church especially has made these two verses the culmination of God's wrath. Well, therefore, look at all these problems of men and women with unnatural relationships. And the world pushes back and says, well, this is natural. This is genetic. This is how I feel. And ultimately, we're left fighting the wrong fight, I believe. See, for Paul, when he describes what is natural, he knows nothing about genetics. I don't know if you know this, Paul had not yet discovered genetics. <laughs> Paul knows nothing about our culture in, in 2023. He knows nothing about the things we think or believe or know to be true. When Paul writes what is natural, he's not even looking at his day and age, the things that were normal for him. What is natural to Paul is the way God created them. Not here and now, but in the garden before sin entered in. The ideal picture of what should be is what Paul writes is natural. Now, if everybody has exchanged the Creator for the creation, has worshipped something made in our own image, every one of us is darkened in our hearts, today we would say boldly that not a one of us knows what is right or wrong in our own hearts. Our own genetics will always deceive us, every single one of us. We will always do what we should not and want what we don't need. Every one of us. Paul is not specifically condemning any group of people as our world has sometimes done. And so I just real quick want to say if you have ever used these two verses or read these two verses with the intention of condemning the other who's not like you, stop it. Because here's what comes next. For the third time, God gives them up to something. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Again, who is they 
Not the people mentioned in the two verses there, but those who rejected what was true and what was known of God to pursue a God in their own image. Every one of us who has been evil or coveting or malice, anyone who's been filled with envy or murder, and Jesus clarifies murder is even anger at your brother, so that would include all of us, or strife or deceit or slanderers. When Paul portrays the wrath of God, he's not alienating any one group or any one sin or any one person. Paul says the wrath of God is that God would allow us to chase after the things we want. He would give us over to do the things we think will fulfill us. And the reason this is the wrath of God, anger will never leave you full. Bitterness will always destroy you. Envy will always put you having less than somebody else. And never what is right. All of these things Paul spells out are the result of God giving us what we want. And then we look at this world filled with anger and envy and bitterness and malice and slander and gossip and we say, God, how dare you do such a terrible thing? And we blame God for doing the very thing we want to do. Paul, he finishes this chapter with this. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that is, those who are boastful or haughty or haters of God or disobedient to parents, a whole host of sins, those who do them deserve to die. Though they knew this, They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And this too has often been used out of context to say us versus them, let's condemn and hate, and that is not what Paul is saying. To approve of those who do such things, how easy is it to dismiss gossip in the name of a prayer request? Oh yeah, I'm just praying for that person's need. No, you're not. You're just gossiping about their sin and their struggle. How easy is it to dismiss anger because, well, they cut me off in traffic and they deserved it. How easy is it to dismiss being disobedient to our parents because what do my parents even know? Or even worse, well, kids will just be kids. That's normal. Normal doesn't mean right. And it doesn't mean good. See, as Paul begins to spell out this argument of the wrath of God and to say, here's what unrighteousness does. It begins by painting this picture that every single one of us has rebelled against God. Every single one of us has been given over by God to the very things we desire. And they will always leave us empty. Now, while this portion of the chapter doesn't go into it, I want to end where we started. Paul is not writing this letter with the goal of condemning anybody. He's not writing this letter with the goal of separating the good from the bad and the righteous from the unrighteous. He's writing this entire letter so that we are forced to reflect on our very sinfulness. One of my favorite heroes of the faith is a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And he wrote this in a book called Life Together about Christian community. He says this, If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. 
How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? See, Paul's writing about the wrath of God is that every one of us can see this good news of Jesus. That no matter where we're at or where we've been, and even no matter where we're headed next and the things still to come, God's good righteousness and making us holy is purely a gift from faith for faith, not dependent upon your works or your own attempts to be God yourself, but given purely out of love. In fact, he goes on later to say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For a good man may die for another good man but what man would lay down his life for an enemy? Paul's good news as he spells out this wrath of God is that though God gives us over to our sinful desires, He does not leave us there. And He calls us and He beckons us with His Son, come exactly as you are and receive all of who I am and in me be made new and whole. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you and we ask today first for those who are disconnected from your grace, for those who do not know of your love, who have been told that you hate them, for those who have been told their sin is too bad and they are too terrible. We ask that your good news of grace and forgiveness would be poured out upon them today. God, may we be a people who shine your light for those trapped in darkness. May we repent of the ways that we've pushed others away. God, may we be okay with the unknowns and the confusion and the things that are not yet clear. And may we boldly proclaim that you are just and merciful, that you are gracious and good, that your love is enough even when we fail not to leave us in our failure, but to give your Son for us in all things. Lord, we pray today for those needing healing, for Kylie and for Ezra, for Michael and for Shirley, for Benny Joe. Lord, we pray for Dan and Sue as they care for her mom. We pray for those who are dealing with infertility, who are desperately seeking a child. Would you grant them that gift today? Lord, we pray today for those who grieve, for Jennifer at the loss of her uncle, for Jessica the loss of her Mima, for Lisa at the loss of her dad. We pray also, Lord, for teachers. As they prepare to go back to the classroom this month, God, would you give them grace to speak love and truth and kindness. God, would you equip them with strength for all the challenges that lie ahead. And Lord, we pray over all of the schools in this city this year that you would guard them and keep them from all schemes of evil. Do not allow evil men in their brokenness and in their hurt to come into our schools in this city this year and cause death and destruction. And Lord, with all these other things on our hearts, we come before you now and pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And deliver us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Every now and then in this place, we like to do something kind of fun and a little different. One of the things we like to do in this place is celebrate your birthday. And uh, recently I've discovered there's several of you whose birthdays I either don't have or I have the wrong birthday. And I've wished several of you happy birthday on the wrong day. And that was a bummer. So one of the things we would like to do in the next couple of weeks, if this is your church home, we would like to just take a moment together as a community and uh, to just make sure all of our information on like your address and your phone number and the, your birthday is up to date. So Adam, can you and the others grab those cards? We're going to hand these out. These are little birthday cards. You see, August is the points birthday. Uh, we're turning 13 at the end of this month. And so... Uh, in celebrating our birthday, we want to celebrate your birthday. And to incentivize you to take a moment and fill this out, I got a little, uh, little something to sweeten the pot, all right? If a hundred of you collectively over the next three weeks fill one of these out, now this is for each person in the family, right? So it could go pretty quick. If a hundred of you do this on August 20th when we have our party in the park, one of you who fills it out will get your name drawn out of a hat and we'll get the chance to throw a pie in my face. So if you haven't thought about filling this out, we're handing them out now. Uh, feel free to raise your hand if you still need one. Uh, fill it out. Steve's all about it. He's like, please, please. Yes. And yes, if you have children, you can put it uh, there for them too. All right, I know that's going to really easily get to 100, and I'll probably get a pie in my face, but that'll be okay. All right? So you fill one of these things out and it will help us to connect with you and serve you. Now when you're done filling it out, you can place it in those black boxes where we normally place the offering at the end of the service. You can just drop it in there. They may be too wide for that slit, in which case you can hand them to Adam. If you don't know Adam, he's the guy in the blue shirt uh, who's also bald and sometimes preaches, all right? Um, so that guy right back there. Um, he makes jokes about his baldness. I figured I could too, right? Just pointing out the reality. Well, as you fill those out, uh, we're going to collect our offering. Here in this place, we don't pass a bucket. But if you're somebody who prefers to give with cash or check, you can do so um, by placing it in the, block, the black boxes uh, on the walls on the back as you exit. If you filled out one of those physical connect cards or those birthday cards, if they fit in the slot, you can drop those in there as well. If you're somebody who came prepared to give today and prefers to give online, you can do so at thepointknocks.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now, we believe that questions are a healthy part of faith, so every week we invite your questions, and I do my best to respond. Adam, what came in today? There's quite a few questions, actually. So the first one... You confessed earlier that you got nervous. Uh, it says, I see your parents are here. It says, do you get nervous in front of your parents? Not normally. In fact, usually I divulge secrets about my life they didn't know about, and they hear them firsthand from this perspective. That's always fun. But no, I, I don't get norm or nervous because they're here normally. I just get nervous in general. 
Uh, this one, this is from last week. It's part of your sermon from last week. It says, do you think you could win the only pancake race if you participated in it? Doubtful. I'm slow and uncoordinated. Uh, I don't know that I could run and flip pan- pancakes at the same time. Yeah. Uh, this great question. It says, I heard recently Jesus referred to as the second Adam. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, Paul gets there later in the letter of Romans. He describes Adam as in Adam and Eve, the first man who was created, who by his sin, everybody is now sinful. Every one of us is broken. And so he's the first Adam, and he describes Jesus as the second Adam, that is, the one who has come and done all things perfectly, unlike the first. And if the first Adam's sin caused everybody to sin, how much more so will the salvation be given and the healing be given through the second Adam who was perfect in every way. And so that's kind of the term, what it means. Basically, he's the new man, the recreated person that one day every one of us will be like when he restores all things. This is just a comment. It says, I'm not there to fill out one of, I guess, the cards for myself, but my birthday is tomorrow, August 7th. So, Well, happy early birthday. I'm not sure who that is because they're anonymous. I believe this card's online. Is that correct, Emily? Sure is not. It will be later. However, if you just fill out a regular Connect card, um, you, can, you can do that as well. And uh, it won't count towards getting your name in the drawing, so be here next week in person so you can do that, okay? This says, can you explain the difference between the NKJV, I guess New King James Version, and the ESV, uh, please? There's a lot of differences. So to summarize it quickly, uh, all the Bibles that you and I read are not the original. I don't know if you knew that. Unless you read in Greek and Hebrew, you're totally missing the mark. I've studied Greek and Hebrew. I would recommend just sticking with the one you have. It's a lot less work, okay? Uh, But throughout history and throughout time, people have had to say, how do we make this Bible, these words, accessible in the modern language? Uh, If you're not familiar, the King James Version Bible was the first ever English uh, version where they had translated it so that the ordinary person could understand it. Now, the problem with the King James Version Bible is when they translated it, they translated it from a Latin translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew translation. Anybody ever played the game of telephone? Now, by the time you go from Hebrew to Greek to Latin and then to English, there's a really good chance you've goofed a bunch of stuff up. Not on purpose, just accidentally. And unfortunately, when King James was having it translated, he didn't have access to all the Greek and Hebrew ones, and so it was translated from a translation of a translation. Now, the new King James Version went back to the original Greek and Hebrew, and they translated it. So they corrected and changed some things that were wrong by accident, Um, but they kept it in the old-style language of the original King James Version. Preference, some people prefer that. It feels holier and more reverent, and sometimes it sounds really lovely. Um, Now, the difference between the ESV and that, the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, attempts to translate it as literally as possible. Sometimes that causes big problems because some of the phrases in Hebrew especially in the poetry, don't make much sense in English. And trying to figure out what they mean, if you're going just by what the word says, can be complicated. So a lot of people find the ESV to be a little more difficult, which is where you also have the NIV, the new international version that attempts to make it more simple and standard while keeping it as close to possible uh, original text. And then you have the message, which is even more so like a paraphrase of the Bible to give us the broad picture. I would recommend, if you've never read the Bible before, you do two things. 
open up a message Bible and open up an ESV Bible and just kind of read them side by side. Uh, so you can see here's kind of what it says and now what in the world does that mean as a beginning place to start. I hope that helps. The next question said, you just said that no one else could drink of the cup. Explain Matthew 20 and 22 and 23. Yeah, so in Matthew 20, 22 and 23, there's a mom who comes to Jesus and says, hey, can you make one of my sons like sit at your right hand and basically be your right hand guy who does all the things and has all this power and authority? And Jesus is like, I, that's not mine to give. That's my father's. Uh, and he asks these two sons, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? I'm like, yeah, we can do that. And they have no idea what he's about to do. Despite the fact that he has numerous times told them, I'm about to suffer and die a brutal, horrendous death. And they're like, no, no, that's never going to happen, Jesus. Of course we can do whatever you do. And so the, in response to them saying, of course we can do this, Jesus responds lovingly. And he's like, well, you will drink this cup, but it won't quite be like what you think. He's not referring to the cup of God's wrath but the sorrow and the suffering that is to come on Jesus ended up coming on them as well. In fact, 11 of the 12 men who followed Jesus, the first disciples, ended up persecuted and killed because of their commitment to Jesus. So when he says you'll drink this cup, it's of sorrow and suffering for the sake of this good news. It's not actually the wrath of God. Questions are continuing to come in. Um, this says, I wanted to say thank you for the message today. Definitely inspiring me. Uh, to help reevaluate things in my life I need to change and work on. I hope and pray others do the same because we are all God's creatures and we need to learn how to be better. Amen. Okay, this is a long one, so bear with me. I think this may be the final question. It says, my question is, why is the church comfortable saying out loud that gossip, murder, and malice are sins, but is, often a, but is afraid to actually say that homosexuality is a sin as well? is not including all that walking very close to Paul's warning of approval of sin. If all sin separates us from God, why do we treat homosexuality differently? Maybe I missed the whole point in this. I understand we are all sinful, but isn't the goal to become more like Jesus and be less and less sinful? I think the reason and why I personally, I can't speak for other pastors, why I don't normally from this place speak and say that homosexuality is sinful is because it comes with such baggage in our culture and such wrong conception of what it is and what it's not and what it means to be Christian. And I think that it, there's so much more that we have to unpack to understand that. Uh, most of us would collectively say, yeah, gossip's bad, but it's not that bad. Most of us are prone to dismiss things like slander because, well, I'm just speaking the truth. You, we all know that person sucks, right? Um, not any one of you. I'm not speaking of you, right? Um, I think most of us are prone to that, but with sexuality, it's a really personal thing that our culture has elevated to be the greatest of things. And it's not. Sexuality is not the most important thing in Scripture. And so I will definitely say I do think God has a standard of what is right or wrong and good or bad sexually. But what I won't definitely say is I don't know what it's like to be gay. I don't know what it's like to feel those feelings and have those thoughts. I don't know what it's like to bear the burden of the shame and the guilt and the hate from several people. I don't know what it's like to look at Scripture and wrestle with it appears to say one thing that is contrary to who I am. And I don't know what it's like to seek to submit myself in that way in a culture that tells me the most loving thing to do is the opposite. And so part of why I, I often refrain from calling it out up here is because most people have heard it called out. 
And what you need heard is that it's not the greatest of sin, and you're not damned because of it. Jesus can love you too, even if you're gay. That's it. My phone is back in my pocket. Those are all the questions. So if there are more questions, I'll respond to them in future weeks. As always, you can text those questions in any time, and I will do my best to respond to them either midweek or next week. Before you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.